Good morning, everybody. What a not so widely spread people we are this morning. I, the other day, yesterday, I was, I was challenging Stuart. I said, "How about you spice it up and you change sides?" I think everyone must have got the message. Other than maybe a few people over here. It's a bit weird. There's like everyone here and a few others there. I could be cruel and ask you to move, but it's all right. Keeps us all awake. You may have noticed I've put my watch on the lectern. People often say, what does it mean when a preacher puts a watch on the lectern? Not much, just airing out my wrist. No, actually, in preparation, um, it seemed to be longer than I was wanting it to be. Uh, so I've put it there, not because I want to fit into a set time frame but I just want to use the time efficiently so if it is a bit longer it may be a bit longer um, but I don't want it to be long for the sake of long nor do I want to cut short and cut out important things so it's it's a guide so there we are as you notice it is a longer reading no I'm not going through every single verse no come the end of the series when we're doing like seven chapters one week no that's not going to take three and a half times longer than this morning's um, nor will I do a recap of the 21, 20 sermons that went before the last one. When I'll get to that one, so it's all good. Okay, let's open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that as we come before you in prayer, we come before the Almighty God. That everyone who came and has believed in Christ. He's given the right to be called children of God. That we are co-heirs with Christ. That your very presence by your Holy Spirit dwells within us. Lord, I pray as we look to your word this morning, and particularly with regards to the call of Moses, that we would be caused to, to look upon the greatness of who our God is. That we might learn something a little bit from uh, Moses' mistakes and see and possibly be challenged with the fact that we tend to make the same mistakes ourselves. Help us to be a people who depend upon who you are, not upon who we are. And we ask that by your spirit uh, that you might uh, change us in our love for you, in our service for you. Uh, That we might hear these as not as the words of a man from the front, uh, but God, that you would uh, grant me your words and that we would hear, receive, and respond to them as, the, as your words. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Who remembers that good old thing you do as a kid when mum or dad puts you on their knee in the car and says, Son, do you want to drive? And now you're just a little kid. You know your feet don't even get anywhere slightly close to the pedals. You know that even though you've got your hands on the steering wheel, mum or dad's got a much firmer grip on the steering wheel. I do not know of a single child when put in that position has said, no way, I refuse. My feet don't touch, I don't know how to steer, no way am I doing it. There's something that the kid understands when mum or dad says, sit on my knee, do you want to drive the car that they know and they trust that the person who is asking them to do that task is going to make sure that it works out right? They're not going to make them go crashing off into the shed or to slam the foot on the accelerator, go through the shed. 
particularly those who grew up on farm properties, probably did this a little bit more. I'm thinking about our driveway. There'd be serious implications if you did go off the end of our carport. You'd drop probably about five metres off the edge. But kids know, no matter what, the person who's called them to do it's going to make sure it works out, even though they know their own limitations. And I think that's a good way of introducing this passage. When God calls us to act... And let's, let's, let's take out the, um, the poor comparison to the, the mum and dad who do have limitations. But when the God who has no limitation, who is all-powerful, calls us to something, we can have confidence that he can equip us and cause that thing to be successful. Now, so our fourth sermon through the book of Exodus. And during so we've covered about 400 years, not bad in, in three weeks. Now, with the Israelites, they go into Egypt. They multiply greatly so much so that Pharaoh started to get concerned. He's like, what happens? What if they grow so great in number? What if the enemies come against us and they join with the enemies and fight against us? So he has some ideas. He's going to sort of slow down their growth. Firstly, he decides, I'm going to make them just work hard, building cities. But they continue to flourish. Let's step it up a notch. Let's treat them ruthlessly like slaves. And they continue to flourish. Ask the Hebrew midwives, when a kid's born, if it's a boy, kill it. That's going to stop them growing up army, make sure they've got no boys. Although we'll see in a very funny sense of humour how that wouldn't have been so wise anyway later on. But then goes even further when the midwives refused because they feared and honoured God more than, than the king. He just turns to the people in general and says, if a male Hebrew child's born... Piff it in the Nile, let it drown and die. Now in chapter 2 we saw introduced, Moses was born, a male Hebrew child, who his mother cared for him and hid him for three months, but eventually places him in a basket in the Nile, the place the king had appointed to be where kids were to be killed. Yet through God's protection and through God's working, Pharaoh's own daughter, the daughter of the one who commanded they die, is the one who finds the child. But God moved in her heart that she was compassionate towards him and even ends up in such a way that the child ends up back with the mother for three to four years and then eventually raised in Pharaoh's own household with the blessing of Pharaoh's household and even with Pharaoh's monies being thrown towards it. What we saw time and time again the most powerful human king in the world at that time had absolutely nothing in comparison to the almighty God. We shouldn't really be surprised. God achieves everything he sets out to do, as we read in Psalm 135. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth and in the seas and in all the deeps. Nothing can hinder the plans of God. If God is almighty, if he is above all rule and authority, you'd have to be higher than that in order to hinder that thing. That people are in Egypt is not a surprise, nor is it a hindrance to the plans of God. In fact, it is part of the plans of God. Back in Genesis 46, and God reveals himself to Jacob saying, God spoke to Israel in visions in the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Similar words, we've seen that this morning. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. 
I myself will go down to you with you to Egypt and I will bring you up again and Joseph's hands shall close your eyes. So the fact that they're there, there's no mistake. God says, don't be afraid to go there. You know the promise I made to your forefather that I'll make you into a great nation? Even though you're going into this nation under a foreign rule, this is going to happen. And I'm going to go there with you and I'm going to bring you out. This is told a number of hundreds of years before it actually took place. Likewise, all the way going back to Abraham in Genesis 15, when God makes covenant with Abraham, part of what he exchanges with Abraham is these words. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, and they will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Now this is all part of the plan. It doesn't mean that it was easy being there in Egypt, being treated that way. And last week we were reminded God never forgets his promises. Yet sometimes in our own brokenness, in our own weakness, we do not trust that God can actually do the things that he says that he will do. And it's not just us who struggle to trust in that sense. Even though it's a God who says he's able to do all that he sets out, all that he's pleased to do, we struggle with that. But even the one who God used to deliver and do one of his great acts of salvation, he struggled to do it. We see in sort of in a breakdown that we're looking at this morning, verses 1 to 12, we see Moses have doubts about himself, has doubts about God and that people will listen, has doubts about God's abilities, has doubts about God's choices. You turn over to Hebrews 11. Do you think Moses there listed amongst the, the chapter of faith? Yeah. Our God is gracious. He knows how weakness he, he is slow, he's patient with us. Even though Moses and we are often very slow to trust. So the scene begins, Moses is out serving as a shepherd for his father-in-law Jethro. And remember, Moses had grown up in Egypt, he's had all the training there, all the privileges and prestige that comes of being within Pharaoh's household. And now he's out and he's serving as a shepherd a role that was very much looked down upon as a very lowly role. But it's also an important preparation for Moses who God is raising up to shepherd and care and lead and deliver his people. And as he's going along, he comes along to Horeb or Mount Sinai and he comes across a bush that is burning. And it's, it's not just that blokes like fire and blokes do love fires. But he notices something specifically different. There's flames, it's burning, but the bush isn't being burnt up anyway. It's not even probably not even getting black. A natural curiosity, as we would do, he goes and has a closer look. Seems to be God's means of getting attention, he's done a good job. And when the Lord saw that Moses saw it, turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. bit similar to Samuel, isn't it? God calling to Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel responds with, just like Isaiah does, here I am. 
Now, this isn't some divine game of hide and seek, and he's calling these names like, here, here I am, God, just I'm over here if you're looking for where I am. But it's more of a communication, not of letting the all-knowing God where your geographical location is, but it's almost a response of, here I am, I'm available to you. So Moses seems to get off to a good start. Well, at least, so it seems. All of this is before God tells him what he's going to do. But notice too, before God tells him what he's going to do, he starts with who God is. I like that idea of we began that way in our songs. Behold our God. I think it's a key to understanding this passage. That we need to know who our God is first and foremost. And firstly, he reveals himself to Moses as a holy God. He says, don't come any closer, take off your shoes. But secondly, he says, which God? Specifically, who this God is. He says, I'm the God of your father, as in Moses' father, but also of the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. The one who's had those great promises that from that offspring, that I will make you into a great nation, that you'll have multitudes, as many as the sky, that I will bring you into a land to make you and set you aside as my own people. Now, I don't know how much Moses knew at this point in time. Certainly his mum probably did her best in those three to four years that she had him before having to give him back to, to Pharaoh's daughter. I'm sure during the years that he was there under Pharaoh's household, I'm sure he didn't get much instruction at all. But let's not forget last week, as he's on the run from Egypt because he killed an Egyptian slave and, and the Pharaoh wants him dead, he ends up marrying and being part of the household of the priest of Midian. And the Midianites, as we said, were uh, descendants of Abraham, so he's probably learned a little bit there during that time as well. Now Moses, who was once curious to have a little bit closer look, now he knows who he's dealing with, says he hid his face because he could not look at God. And that's a common response you see throughout the scriptures when confronted with the very presence of God, there's that fear of that, that sense of fear and awesomeness. That this God is something completely different than me. Something very other than all creation. This isn't something to just play around with. It puts us into our place to see and behold the almighty God. And reminds of how faulted and how little we are. We already saw last week the final couple of verses of chapter 2. It says, God heard the cries of his people. He heard their moans and he remembered his covenant. Not just that it came back to his mind, but God chose to act decisively on behalf of his people. Now he tells Moses this, that he's heard and he's seen their affliction. He's heard their cries for help. Now verse 8, he says, I have come down. Not that God was out of the world until this point. It's just a phrase that gets used throughout the scriptures where God is specifically talking about a way that he's going to act within this world. To deliver you out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring you into the land of Canaan. Now Moses must be pretty excited to know that this is starting to take place. That what was promised in covenant to Abraham, that this is now happening. And this guy who seemed to be rejected by the Israelites and on the run from the Egyptians seems to be the first guy who gets insight into this. And he must be thinking, great, can't wait to see how God's going to do this. 
until the words of verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You might be like, what? You just said you're going to come down and bring them out and now you're sending me off to do it. It's your job. Don't bring me into it. That must seem ridiculous to Moses. Egypt wanted me dead for killing one of their people. My own people, when I tried to help them last time, they didn't want nothing to do with me. They were like, who appointed you ruler and judge over us? So the people of Israel don't really want him. The Egyptians don't want him. And God says, you're the one I'm going to send to go before Pharaoh and say, yeah, we're just going to nick off. Is that okay with you? Now, in one sense it's fair, you think, of course he can't do that. But what we need to remember, it's God who is sending him. The Almighty God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is the one who's called him to that. Yet Moses focuses all on, who's me? He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Egypt? I'm just a bloke. And that sense, he's right. I mean, what, um, in terms of a logical odds, what's are the chances of this guy who's been sort of on exile from Egypt for killing an Egyptian, is going to go before Pharaoh and say, you know all those thousands of slaves you've got doing hard work, doing all these great things in your lands? How about you just let them all go and we all go somewhere else? You're going to be sweet with that, aren't you? He knows that's not going to happen. But he's wrong if he thinks in God sending Moses, that means it's dependent upon Moses. God assures Moses saying, I will be with you. That's not God just saying, that way I'll be cheering on the sidelines. When God says, I will be with you, my power, my strength will work through you. This isn't a task you're doing and I'll just like say, keep going, good fella. But the power to achieve what you have accomplished, I will be with you. God's the deliverer. Moses is just the human agent that God is using. A little bit like the Great Commission. Remember at the end of Jesus' ministry, before he's going to ascend, he says, all authority has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all I've commanded you. For behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Because it makes no sense that everyday people are just going to share the gospel, people are going to respond. But God says, I will be with you. People will respond, people did respond. The church exploded because the very presence of God was with his people in the task, not because the people themselves were special. Even though we've got that very same assurance that God will be with us, told, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We have the very fullness of God, the indwelling spirit living within us. We're sort of like Moses. We keep, as we're confronted by God's words and the things that calls us to, we think, who am I? Within my limitations, what's the odds of this happening? And this is our problem, this is Moses' problem. We tend to focus too much on who we are. We read things and then we weigh them up and we look at them through the filter or the lens of our limitations and then reinterpret things. Our focus should be God. 
Who is our God, not who am I? Now God gives Moses a sign. He says, no, when, when I've brought you out of Egypt, you'll serve God on this mountain. Now he's probably thinking, what sort of a dud sign is that? I want some confidence that you're going to do this and the sign you tell me is that after I've done it, then I'll have a sign. I want something that guarantees that it's going to happen. I mean, effectively, he shouldn't need much more, should he? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, who has demonstrated that somehow he can appear in a burning bush where the bush doesn't burn up, he sent him to the task. He says it's going to happen. He says, I will be with you. It's got nothing to do with you. All you really need to do is, is trust that it's going to do. Then you'll see that end result when it happens. But it's an interesting note to the way that God revealed himself in a burning bush. That he would reveal himself in such a way that demonstrates his authority over nature and that he has complete control over nature. Because that's the way he's going to bring him out of Egypt. He's going to show that nature, Red Sea, psh, we're going through that thing. Moses is right to question his own limitations, but he's got a wrong focus on himself rather than a focus on who his God is. So secondly, God has questions about God and whether the Israelites will be convinced of this. He says, what if I go say God sent me? And they say, what's his name? Now you might, you might think, oh, that's a bit of a dumb question. I know my reluctance, and you probably experience the same. If someone comes up to you and says, God sent me to say this to you, who's naturally thinking, oh, great, God's going to tell me something here. It's not my first response. He says, what are they going to do if they say, who is this God? Who sent you? What's his name? What seem an unusual answer. He says, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. Meaning, I am or to be. Not created, something that was always existing. In one sense, it seems a, a weird answer because it's not used before now. If he wants to sort of give these people a reassurance that this God is the God who is sending them, why, why would you use a title you've never used before? It doesn't even get used much more in the Old Testament either. The only other time that I can specifically think of is when Jesus pulls it out in John 8.58. It says, you know, before Moses was, I am. And he's not just saying that he was around before Moses was. The fact that people picked up stones to stone him as the blasphemer, they knew exactly what he was saying. And as a result of this, people are divided as to what name is God giving him. Is he saying my name is I am in verse 14? Or is it what he says in verse 15? Where God also says to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord, that is you see there it's in capital letters, it's not on the screen, but it's in your Bible. And Lord, the God of your fathers, so that is the, the divine name of Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I'm remembered throughout all generations. Often people think of this chapter as the chapter when God reveals his name to Moses. You want to know something? This name's throughout Genesis. Matter of fact, it's even in this own chapter previous to now in verse 2. It makes sense that God would reveal himself in a name that the people that he's trying to convince actually know and identify. Now, I don't know if Moses was familiar with the divine name up until this point in time, but the people he was going to bring a message to would have. But more than it just being a name, 
to represent this is the God. You see, reveals himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not just the God who used of, who was of, but is of. Who continues to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But one thing I find really fascinating, Moses is doubting and doubting and doubting. Yet God pretty much tells him exactly how every single detail is going to work out. He doesn't just send him on a mystery thing and say, now, this might work out. He tells him every step of the way. Look at verses 17 and 18. And no, that's not crossed out. That's just the way it's come up on the screen. And I, this is God, and I will promise, so, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites. It's one thing when your mate promises you something. When God says, oh, I promise I'm going to do it, there's pretty good odds going on there. They're called 100% for the record. The, so I take you out of the land of the Canaanites, uh, Egypt to the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we might sacrifice to the Lord our God. Remember back in chapter 1, one of the fears wasn't just that they were multiplying and that they might form an army. One of the fears of Pharaoh was that they might escape. And now here's God sending Moses and saying, Go off and up to, to Pharaoh and say, can we go for a, a three-day journey that we might worship our God? Now you might think, oh, you know, you've got to have right, civil rights, they're part of the union maybe, you can get like a three-day exception and all the nation goes out to worship their God, religious exemption or something. But the expression three-day journey was an ancient expression meaning a long time and didn't necessarily always even mean coming back. So as Moses is hearing God saying, I want you to go and say to the Pharaoh, the guy who's got all these guys slaving, working for them to build his own empire, is it okay with you if we just all go? We just stop working for you and we just go do our own thing. You can imagine what's going through Moses' head. He's like, no way. There's no chance that's ever going to happen. God understands that. Look at verse 19. The king will not let you. Not only will the king not let you, unless a mighty hand moves him. He says, yeah, I agree with you, Moses. It's completely against the odds of natural odds. Unless a mighty hand moves him. And God says, verse 20, and I will stretch out my hand and do wonders amongst the people, and they will let you go. Now that word translated, let you go, is actually, they will send you away. So not only has God said, this is going to happen, he's not just saying they'll make a concession, they will, let you, they will permit you to go, they will actually get to a point where they will send you out. So Moses is wondering how he's going to do it, but if you look through the things that God says in this passage, I promise I will take you out of Egypt to Canaan, they will listen to you, I will stretch out my hand wonders so they want to send you out. In verse 21, I will give you the favour of the Egyptians. 
God says, I am the deliverer. It's going to happen. All you need to do is humble yourself, stop looking about your limitations, start embracing who I am and who I've called you to be and what I've called you to do, and it's all going to work out. But in a little humorous twist, not only does he say he'll take them out of, out of Egypt, when the Pharaoh was worried about all the, the males growing up to form an army, and usually it would be the, uh, the warriors who would plunder the nations, look who does it. It's the women who take the silver and gold from the Egyptians and eventually that, that silver and gold gets used within the tabernacle. So Moses offer an excuse, not me. What if, they don't, what if they ask who he is? Now his next question is questioned God's abilities, saying, what if they won't listen to me? Remember back chapter 3, verse 18, God says, they will listen to you. So when Moses says, what if they won't listen to me? It's a bigger question than what if they won't listen to me. He's basically asking, what if you can't do what you say you're going to do? What if you don't have the ability to pull off what you're promising here? That's a big call to say to God, isn't it? What if you can't do this? What if you're all talk? You understand why the scripture says God is slow to anger? Because imagine being asked that. What what if you can't do this stuff you're talking? But also, we're slow to trust. But rather than rebuking Moses, God willingly gives him further signs. What's that in your hand? A staff? No, he's been working as a shepherd, so he's just got a staff, which is just a fancy stick, really. Just an inanimate object. There's nothing special about it. Just a stick. He says, chuck it on the ground. And what is just a basic everyday stick becomes a snake. Now that doesn't happen every day. I've chucked plenty of sticks in my life. Not, not any of them turned into snakes. Then pick it by the tail. It's a staff again. Moses, you think God can't use you? You think God can't have a profound effect in people? I've just taken a stick and done something miraculous with it. Then try another one. Put your hand in your, in your coat. Pull it back out, leprosy, put it back in, all good. I have full full control over nature. I'll give you another one, just just for good measure. Take some of the water in the Nile, pour it on on dry land, it'll turn into blood. The Nile that was so revered by the Egyptians, being their big source of power and life, I'll just turn that into blood. These aren't just party tricks, this isn't God just putting on a show. It's a little bit like the miracles of Jesus. They're never done just so people be fascinated and go, wow, you can do cool stuff. They're always to authenticate that the person who is bringing the message has their full authority to bring the message that they're bringing. And that's exactly what God is doing now through Moses. Surely Moses now ready enough to follow and trusting obedience. Nah. Often struggle to trust God at his word. Moses sure does. Now he's doubting God's choices. Verse 10 of, of chapter 4. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. I'm starting to get the impression that Moses isn't that keen for the task. Now I don't know what specifically it means when he says he was slow of speech. The Greek version of the Old Testament has it basically saying that he had a stutter. We don't know if that's actually the case. But whatever reason he says, 
I don't think I've got the mouth to be able to stand before Pharaoh and make him change his mind. I can't put forward a case to him. There's a couple of issues with that. One is God has told him the exact words to say, so so he doesn't have to think too much about his wording and how he does it. But while he thinks he's not capable of bringing a case before Pharaoh, the same guy seems to feel pretty confident to bring his case before the Almighty God, doesn't he? He's quite happy to have an argument with God about stuff, to try and change his mind, but, oh, no, not Pharaoh, he can't do that. The Lord says to him, who made your mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I but the Lord? It's like that mouth that you're saying is so limited. I made that. You think I can't use what I've made for my glory and for my purposes? But another interesting part is there, which is it's a bit of a side note, but it's in there. He also says, who makes some mute or deaf or blind? Things that we might call disabilities. God says, I do all that. Now, don't, don't see these, even though we use that term disability, don't see these things as a limitation for God. God says, I make all of these different things. And they serve my purpose. I use them for my glory. Now, we might have a physical disability or a mental disability or some other form of disability. We might think, God can't use me. God says, you know what you are? I made that. I made that so I can bring glory to myself. I can use that. I remember hearing a story about one of the, I uh, can't remember which one, a particular Puritan pastor whose wife had a child born with Down syndrome and he didn't know what to do with it. He, did, and he took the kid away, he didn't show it to his wife and he, he ran off to another, another minister to speak to him and said, what do I do? And I was actually looking at this passage. And he went back to his wife and says, God has blessed us with a Down syndrome child for his glory. And that's one, of, one reason why when we had both our kids, they said, do you want to do this scan where we test to see whether or not kids are going to have this or that? And said, why would we? It's not going to change our mind about anything. God makes what he makes and he does say for his glory is all of it's good. And responding to Moses' complaint about his mouth... Now God says, go, and I will be with your mouth. He's already told him he's going to be with him, but if you specifically worry about your mouth, I'll bring it in and target it right down specifically. I will be with your mouth. Your mouth will do what I want it to do. Every objection Moses brought has been responded to and responded to well. And finally, Moses gets to a point where he's got no excuses left. He's got no more questions. He just refuses. And he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. There's no question here. It's not a reservation he's got now. It's just like, that. no, don't want it. Give it to someone else. The complete opposite of Isaiah's, here I am, send me. He's like, here I am, send someone else. I'm not going to do it. I refuse to obey. This time, God's angry. Now, beforehand, he endured with him when he had some questions. You could see why he was asking those questions. Now he just says, I'm out. Don't send me. Get someone else. I just refuse to trust that you can do this. But once again, we see God graciously dealing with Moses. He says, you know what? Your brother Moses, he's a pretty good speaker, I've seen. He says, I'm still going to deal with you because my promise is with you. 
But you can, what I tell you, you can pass on to Aaron and Aaron can do the speaking on your behalf. But he's only going to be a mouthpiece for you. You are still the one whom I am dealing through. Although what you'll notice um, throughout the Exodus, Aaron actually doesn't do much of the speaking. Then before he goes, God says, don't forget your staff. Don't forget your little stick. Not because he's just worried about his sheep, but this is something that God is going to use mightily. Something, an inanimate object, nothing special about it. It's going to be the very means by which God parts the Red Sea. One day he'll whack a rock and water will come flowing out of it. The signs that he's going to perform in Egypt. Now it's not a glamorous start for Moses. You think, how's this going to work out? God's chosen deliverer to get all the Israelites who are serving as slaves out of the most powerful nation. How's that going to work out? Now, we're not likely to receive a similar call in our life that God's going to raise us up to deliver us under the oppression of a particular nation. But it does beg ask the question, how do we respond to God's commands, to his promises, to his leading? Clearly, Moses isn't really a good example to look to, is he? The fact that it's God calling him and speaking to him directly doesn't seem to make much of a difference to him. He seemed to see everything through the lens of his own weaknesses. And I can tell you now, if you are reading God's word and your first focus is upon yourself, you will always see weakness, brokenness and hopelessness. Impossibility. I love the visual picture that we have in in these chapters. That God says, you know, what's that in your hand? It's a stick. Yet I am the God who can do mighty things even through a stick. Do you think you have a little bit more potential than a stick? I hope you do. No, no, one, no one's like you. If God can do the miraculous and get a stick to do his mighty purposes, he's certainly able to call and equip people to serve his purposes. But whenever our focus is on ourselves, we will see our hopelessness, our brokenness and our weakness. But if our focus is on our God, the potential will be limitless. And our challenge to us is when God appeals to us, in whatever way that might be, whether it's appeal that we know that we're in need of a saviour, or whether he's confronting us in regards to a particular sin, or whether it's a call to a particular task or a ministry, the right response is trust and obey not because we can see in ourselves the potential or the ability, but because we know the one who has called us. We know that he is the one who says that he's declared in Psalm 135, does all that he sets out to do, all that he pleases. If in thinking to the appeal of God to us, if we're thinking about, we, have a, we see a need for his salvation. Now our natural mind's going to think, I'm not good enough for God. He can't forgive me. I've done this, this and this. God can't give eternal life. But the God who does all he pleases can do all these. If if it's God confronting us in a particular sin, 
our natural re- reaction going to be if we look at ourselves is, I can't do this. I've been struggling with this for years. This is the God who everything he sets out to do, he wills, he pleases. Who dwells in his people by his Holy Spirit. If it's called to serve in a particular role or into ministry, even though you think, oh, I'm not so sure about that one, God always qualifies the people he chooses. And if you look throughout the Bible, a lot of the people he chooses aren't the people we would pick. Like if we didn't know exactly how this thing pans out, we'd probably agree with Moses, yes, yeah, send someone else. This guy's a dad. But there was one, one last thought I want to leave you with. And it is a last thought, so if time's dragging on, we're on the last thought. Who's played Simon Says? We're not going to play a game right now, but just on the off chance that someone here has never seen Simon Says, the person out the front will say Simon Says, and whatever Simon Says, like Simon Says, put your hands on your head, then everyone puts their hand on the head, but if it doesn't say Simon Says, you just do it, you're out of the game. Now what I've observed is this. No matter how stupid the thing is, no matter how much the people doing the game think that they're no good at doing it, if Simon says it, people do it. No matter how idiotic they look, no matter that everyone else around them can do it better than they can, we just do it because Simon says it. Doesn't make sense, does it? This completely fictitious Simon with absolutely no power or authority says to do stuff and we just do it. Yet as we're reading God's word and we see God says and we're like, nah. Does that make sense? That we naturally do what Simon says, 100%. When the almighty God says something, we come up with all the reasons why we shouldn't do it, why we won't do it, why we can't do it. So as we close here, I'm just going to leave it open for a time of quiet, reflective prayer to sort of process some of these things and, and pray for God and then I'll close this off and then we'll um, continue on. Uh, Lord, we come to you confessing that uh, the very tendency of, of Moses to, to see our weaknesses and to um, limit what we believe that you can do resides within every single one of us. We are so quick to uh, think of excuses. Uh, but help us to remember, as you had to remind Moses, that you are the one who created us and you, you are the one who created us and that you are the one who saved us that you are the one who, who, who calls us and who appeals to us, but you are also the one who dwells in us by your Holy Spirit, that we have the very means to, to fulfill the things that you, that you um, call us to do. And I know every single time that I fail, 
to live the life that you've called us to live? It's because I look to myself and I don't trust the God who, who has called me. I, not intentionally, but by nature, declare that you're not able to do what you say you're able to do. Help us to have a focus upon you, to see you, to behold your glory and to willingly trust and obey. And Lord, when we see things happen that we didn't expect, not to become proud, but to give you thanks as the God who saves and the God who delivers. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now I'm slightly going to spice up the order of service a little bit. Um, one is we're going to have um, have a time of singing before communion, but also during that time I'm going to suggest that if you have kids in crèche, that you go collect the kids and also um, the crèche leaders so that uh, we can all gather together for communion. So ask our musicians to come up the front. Uh, we'll sing songs, but parents, if you have children in crèche, please go sign them out and bring them back in.